This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 23, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. For many low-income people, the government's reach can be long indeed. A growing number of Americans in low-income jobs need a government license to do their work. Dick Carpenter is co-author of a new Institute for Justice report on occupational licensing, License to Work, a national study of burdens from occupational licensing. Some people think of it as an either-or. Either there's going to be licensing or there'll be no licensing and the public will be threatened, their health and safety and so forth. And we, we won't know what quality uh, consumer or what quality producer will be out there. In fact, uh, that's not an either-or. In fact, there are many different options that exist for people to um, understand the quality of the person who might provide their good or service. Or um, there are many other ways to judge whether or not someone's uh, safety is going to be protected. So if you're a consumer, there are options out there like the Better Business Bureau. There's Angie's List. There's Yelp. You go on Google or any other search field, and there are numerous consumer reviews out there. So there are plenty of ways for people to find out how is it that this person could provide a quality service to me? How can I know if I'm going to get the good or service that I'm looking for? And then on on the public safety side, in our report, what we demonstrate is that if there were really a significant threat to public health and safety by many of these occupations, you would expect them to be licensed everywhere all over the place. But in fact, most of our, almost all of the occupations that we studied are unlicensed somewhere, and in fact, many places that are unlicensed. So it's not, shampooers is a great example. Shampooers are regulated in just a few states. So if there was really a problem in all these unregulated states, you would expect to see mass consumer demand for more licensure and protection from dangerous shampooing. In fact, that's just not the case. What are some of the odd occupations? You mentioned shampooers, but it seems like there are several odd occupations that uh, are licensed in some places that uh, just doesn't really make a lot of sense. To begin, we didn't even know some of these occupations existed. So we started out with a list of occupations from the, from the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and we put those up against um, income levels. And we intentionally looked for occupations that were less than the national average. And then from there, we looked for occupations that were most definitely licensed. And as, when we looked through the list, we were surprised by the fact that we didn't even know what some of these things were. We actually had to go to the Dictionary of Occupational Titles to find out what is this thing. So some of these were very surprising, let alone that they were licensed. So uh, some things you know, but some things you may not know. Still machine setter. I don't even know what that is. Um, milk sampler is a good one. Um, slot key person, unless you're into gaming and go to casinos a lot, you may not know what a slot key person is or, or maybe what they do. That was a surprising one as well. Upholsterer. I knew what an upholsterer was, but the fact that upholsterer is licensed not in one state, but in multiple states. You have to have a license to upholster furniture. That one was surprising to me as well. Log scaler, that one is uh, a license in a couple of states. And then there are some that are even more arcane. Um, there is backflow prevention assembly tester. Uh, <laughs> not only is this an occupation, but it is licensed. In many large uh, industrial facilities, there are uh, certifications that individuals go through 
to work on certain kinds of machinery that are certified essentially just by the company. That's right. That uh, where the, the government really has no has no role, but of course the company is risking uh, its capital, and the individual is risking their sometimes personal safety. Sure. And, and I, I think more broadly, the t- kinds of certifications that can exist. Uh, the government is supplanting. Right. That's exactly right. So not only would a company certify their own workers, but there are industries that provide certification as well. So something less arcane that we're all aware of is car mechanics. Car mechanics are unlicensed almost everywhere, but there is a very regimented certification process that many car mechanics go through. And we see it when we go to our mechanic. We see it on the wall everywhere. They wear patches on their shirts, ASE certified. There are plenty of ways for people to go out and get certification and send a signal. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about how can an individual who wants to work send a signal to a consumer that I provide not only quality service, but also uh, something about my work meets some sort of standard, such that if you were to hire me, you're going to get a quality level of service. And not only a company can certify, but also third parties can certify as well. At root of a lot of these certifications, uh, if you're an economist, is just, I want to charge more for what I'm offering, and I want to keep people from easily coming in and out of my market. Either you're in, like me, or you're out, and that means you you don't worry about getting a license. That's right, protectionism. And when we boil it down, that's exactly what it is. This goes back hundreds of years, where people who are in a an industry, in a guild, if you will, realize there's an economic advantage to me to be able to fence out others, and I can realize higher prices and higher wages. Sociologists call it market shelters. The idea is that I can build a shelter around my market, and therefore I can reap the benefits as a result. The interesting thing is um, Timmermans, a sociologist who uses this term of market shelter, he actually has done research on what happens to innovation as a result of market shelters or fences or protectionism. And what he finds is that, not surprisingly, innovation is stunted or retarded as a result of these market shelters. What states are worst? Okay. Just across the board. We, we measure two things in the report. First, we measure how many occupations are regulated by a state. And then we measure the burden associated with the licenses. And we look at several different requirements, fees, education and training, how many exams, minimum grade, minimum age. And with those, we, we essentially rank states by how burdensome they are in their requirements, their licenses. So when we look just at how many licenses a state has, Louisiana hits the top of the list with 71. And we studied 102 occupations, so Louisiana comes up at 71. So they're the most burdensome just in the sheer number that they regulate. In terms of burden, um, Hawaii tops the list. They have the most burdensome laws of all of them. But then when you wrap them all together, number of licenses plus the burden, Arizona hits the top of the list in that case with 64 regulated occupations and then very burdensome license requirements as well. So they top the list. IJ does a lot of work on economic freedom, and this is a, seems to be a clear-cut case of that. What would uh, the state need to show in order to say this license that regime that we have that we've established is totally legit, it's totally constitutional, and does not interfere with your right to... Uh, Uh, to your economic liberty. If you're going to impinge upon economic freedom 
if you're going to limit the ability of someone to work in the occupation of their choice, you should prove the need for the license. If you think there's a need for a license, prove it. It's as simple as that. And by proving it, we mean you should show that there is a legitimate threat to public health and safety without the license. And what we see over and over again is, in fact, that is not true. When we looked at interior designers, for instance, in a study called Designing Cartels, we went out and looked for evidence of threat to public health and safety, and we could find none. In fact, there were multiple state agencies over the years that have done the exact same thing. They've gone in, in, in their state, they have gone looking specifically for evidence of harm to public health and safety by unlicensed interior designers, and they couldn't find any and even gave reports to their state legislators saying, we can't find any reason for this license. There's no threat to public health and safety. So that's what we mean by prove it. You should show the need for the license. You did not study occupations like school teacher, which essentially requires a uh, government license because the government's, for the most part, the only uh, group that purchases the services of school teachers. What about uh, those those other kinds of occupations? Sure. We didn't study those, so I can't speak specifically to all of those, but we would say something very similar in that case as well. Teachers is a great example, I think, because we have two parallel markets for school teachers. We have the private sector and we have the public sector. And only in the public sector are teachers required to have a license. We have thousands, tens of thousands of people working as school teachers in the United States in private schools every day. And in fact, we see that there's no monstrous threat to public health and safety in the private sector where people are working unlicensed all the time as compared to the public sector, public schools requiring the license. What kind of progress is being made in terms of, at least within courts, and I feel like courts are the necessary end game for uh, deciding whether or not a license is legitimate. What kind of progress are you making in terms of uh, advancing the ball toward getting rid of some of these uh, onerous uh, license regimes? The progress is slow, but there is progress. So sometimes legislatures will respond to our lawsuits. So in Louisiana, for instance, um, we brought suit against the state for a licensure regime for florists. And not one, but two lawsuits in, in Louisiana finally resulted in the reduction of the burden for florists. Not the complete elimination, but the reduction of licensure for florists. So sometimes legislatures will respond. Um, in uh, Texas, for instance, um, there were attempts to pass an interior design licensure law there, and we were successful in bringing a lawsuit. The legislature responded, and so that particular uh, license never came to fruition as well. A recent decision in Louisiana on casket selling was a big win as well. So in that particular case, there was, there was an abbey in Louisiana, some monks who were making handmade custom caskets that they were selling not widely, but they were certainly selling to people who were interested in this type of craftsmanship for a casket. The funeral directors wanted to shut them down because they were selling caskets without a license. So we moved on behalf of the monks and, in fact, had a great win in Louisiana where the court essentially said this is protectionism at its worst. There's no reason that they should be funeral directors just to sell their caskets. And so that was a good win as well. So those win we're starting to see a few of these wins, and we plan to leverage those in future decisions. Rational basis review is something that I think would pose a, pose a serious problem to 
uh, rolling back a lot of these uh, licenses. Can you explain that a little bit? Simply put, the rational basis review is if a judge can find any rational reason why a license should exist, he or she has the ability to say, okay, that license uh, should be upheld. It's totally fine to have that particular license. And so the state can can find any particular reason, however far-fetched, can find any particular reason and bring it up and say, here's a reason why this license not only um, should exist. So the state can bring up any reason they can find to support why this license should exist. And not only, sh- not only can they say this is what the legislature thought was a good reason, but they can think of anything that the legislature didn't even mention. They can think of something in the future, some reason in the future why this license might exist, not something that's just current. So Louisiana is another great example. When we challenged the Louisiana florist license, one state official actually supported that law by saying we need to protect the public from infected dirt. Under oath, this person said this law is rational because we need to protect people from public dirt. Under oath, this official said, this license is necessary to protect the public from infected dirt. That's the type of um, steep climb we have in front of us. Dick Carpenter is co-author of the new Institute for Justice report, License to Work, a national study of burdens from occupational licensing. You can read more on state and local government regulation at our website, cato.org.